0: Simple Beep, Episode 77, Word Processors. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormony. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we're going to talk about a whole class of software that we might have touched on a couple times in previous episodes, but we haven't really done a deep dive on and looked at the breadth of options that were available. In the classic Mac era for word processing, a task that we obviously still do frequently today. So, before we get into that, we usually have follow up in this section. We don't really have any items from previous shows, except I wanted to say thank you to everybody who has gone and purchased a Simple Beep shirt. Oh, yes. Since they've gone back up on our Cotton Bureau store. As you're listening to this, it's getting very close to Christmas, so if you had wanted one for Christmas, it's a little bit too late. But the good news for everyone is that if you were undecided in the past, since the shirts are now available completely on demand, they will be a bit available for purchase for the foreseeable future. So as soon as you decide that yes, you definitely want that Simple Beep shirt you can go to our website and there's now a link at the top of the website for the shirts and it'll take you over to our Cotton Bureau store. So thanks again for everyone who's purchased and uh, just wanted to remind people that it's available.
1: And sometimes in our follow-up section, we cover uh, recent news in the tech community, the tech atmosphere that uh, touches on topics we've talked about. But in this case, there's a recent news event that uh, helped inspire the topic for this very episode?
0: Well, I think that we had actually chosen the topic already, and we were starting to do some of the research. And then I saw this link come across and thought, oh, well, I have to mention this in the show. So we're going to talk about word processors today. And we think of word processors as a class of software. And I think that we'll talk a little bit about The distinction between that is a robust distinction now between a text editor and a word processor, which was a blurrier line in early computing days. But we're talking early microcomputing days, personal computing days. And this uh, news article, it's a, it's a slightly sad article, but uh, it is an obituary. Uh, And the headline from New York Times is Evelyn in 93 dies. She lived a long, full life. And the headline is built the first true word processor. It has this great picture of her sitting with the device that she invented. And she was president of this company. And it was called the data secretary. Uh there's if you scroll down in the article there's another image of just the computer itself and I would say I this is almost like a mini computer rather than a desktop computer and reminds me a lot it's got a portrait orientation monitor reminds me a lot of the Xerox Alto in terms of its physical design I think that it was a white text on black kind of situation as opposed to the Alto which was black text on white but this was truly the first designated word processing device uh outside of, you know, a general purpose computer that then could have some sort of text editing capabilities and it was sold as a word processor to businesses and this woman who I had not heard of before was was a pioneer in this field and it's a really nice write up of that uh of her contributions and uh definitely wanted to share that and uh you know, spread this story about how we got to some of the applications that we'll talk about as we move over to word processing on the Mac.
1: We figured we'd get started before we get into, like Ed said, true word processing, which gets into a little bit of page layout and advanced text formatting with uh, styles and rules and rulers. And instead start with the uh, more straightforward text editors that were first-party software applications bundled with your classic Macintosh. And there's really no better place to start this section than with the application TeachText, which was a very straightforward, plain text uh, reader and writer. And it was so named TeachText because it was actually, in itself, an example application For software developers, it was a a pretty straightforward app. It was just, you know, one window that took plain text and you could save, you could open and you could do, uh, basically that was it. And, uh, early on in the classic Mac era, Apple offered the source code of teach text freely available to software developers who wanted to poke around and see how this very simple application worked and use it to help them create their own, uh, as Ed and I both did, and as I'm sure many people did, uh, the extent of poking around and figuring out how things worked in that era was mostly done in ResEdit, and not in um, something that would actually deal with the the code, the data fork, in something like Code Warrior. Well, as I looked into teach text myself for this episode, I realized that the entirety of the application is in the resource fork. You could see the entirety of it in ResEdit. And of course, there is one of those code, C-O-D-E, uppercase resource types that I'm sure has the bulk of the the functions. But uh, it's a very small application. It only has uh, the black and white icon resource. And the majority of it is in its windows and dialog boxes. So the whole thing is a resource fork that's about 20 kilobytes.
0: That's not much, but considering that it was bundled uh, and that most things were running off of floppy disks at the time, uh, your editor couldn't be that large to begin with. And of course, the files that it produced were very small, basically ASCII text, so what, one byte per character? And I don't think really anything else, because as you said, there was sort of no styling, and it was... At first, limited to just the default font 12 point Geneva, nice and readable on screen. Um, I think you could print it if you wanted to, but uh, there was no page formatting. It was just, it, it wrapped however, however it came on the page, which didn't necessarily correspond to the window because it would soft wrap the text within the window, which is a very Mac like thing to do, as opposed to some text editors where they're like, it's eighty characters across because it's like a terminal window, or uh, some that would say uh, soft wrapping lines. What's that? If there's a line break, then we'll put a new line, and otherwise, it will just scroll rightward into infinity. <laughs> so, like you said, in that way, it was a good Mac citizen and a good example app for developers. And then, in terms of the what I was mentioning with the storage size itself, the file format was limited to 32k of text. So that would be about what 32,000 characters, is that right? Am I doing the math right? <laughs> yeah. Which is not enough to write your novel, <laughs> but it uh, at least not without breaking up uh, every chapter. Uh so it was limited in that way, but it was a good proof of concept and could lead on to other things.
1: And uh, like I said earlier, it wasn't just for writing and saving, but often it was just for reading because uh, a, a common trope of Mac software early on was including the README file on the disk or the, the downloadable that it came with. And uh, this was one of TeachText's two file types. There was, of course, the uh, all capitals TEXT, T-E-X-T, which was a read and write document and then there was the TTRO, Teach Text Read Only. And uh, I'm sure everyone who used a Mac in this era remembers the icon of uh, a like a gray front page newspaper that <laughs> says Extra. Uh, these were the read-only files that people would create in Teach Text or later Simple Text. And then as far as I know, change the file type code in ResEdit to basically lock it to a read-only document.
0: Like you said, Brian, one of these features, one of these main features of having Teach Text in the system was so that these README files were available and readable. And in that sense, it's kind of like, the role that Preview serves in macOS today, where it's a bundled system application. Of course, Preview is much, much more capable and handles many more file types, and it has gained features throughout the life of OS X and current macOS. But one of the reasons that it's there is so that you can open a basic file type. Like in this case, if you were distributing software and wanted to have the equivalent of a readme file. If you're going the Unix way, you're going to go plain text old school, kind of like the the TTRO kind of file. But if you were doing that with a piece of consumer software now, I would think that you would probably include it as a PDF, which would open in preview, the parallel bundled app. Uh, Fortunately, I think we have gotten past that awkward era, although I see it, especially when we're researching software for this show, where people would bundle their readme files as html sometimes html with like a folder full of assets with some expectation that when you double clicked this it would like render nicely in a browser and frequently this is not the case uh so i'm glad that we've gotten past that (laughs) past that sort of awkward era from one simple file type to well i don't know if pdf is a simple file type but certainly a universal file type that we think has really almost as much staying power as the plain text that uh, that simple text would output. And as far as I know, if you have an ancient teach text file and you have anything that will open a .txt on your Mac today, it just works,
1: right? I think so. You may have to do some kind of jiggering like force the .txt at the end of the file.
0: Right, and I guess you may have if you have uh, something that is particularly old, you might have some kind of character encoding hell to unsort, but uh but good modern text editors have the ability to uh flip through those pretty quickly as well. So, yeah, it's a it's a highly portable app and highly portable format.
1: And one final thing about Teach Text, and especially along the lines of setting an example for developers to learn from as they make applications that feel like a Mac application, uh, Teach Text also had an Easter egg where you option select about Teach Text from the Apple menu. This was, of course, in the Finder and lots of other Apple software. And in Teach Text's example, if you regularly selected About Teach Text, you'd get the names of its two primary authors. And if you option select t- About Teach Text, you get uh, a bunch of additional thanks for other people who chipped in.
0: As always, uh, always look for things and always hold down the option key in the About box. And as for the thing that I was just wondering, uh, I had uh, I Cheap Shaver open as we're recording, um, whether that's a good idea or not. <laughs> um, it's pretty stable. Uh, I opened up an app that we'll talk about in a minute, Simple Text, and just typed some stuff in there, saved it as untitled with no extension, came back over to my current macOS environment, and just double-clicked on it, and lo and behold, it opened. No problems whatsoever. Excellent. Next, let's talk about a couple other things that existed, well, one of them, all the way from System 1.0 through the entire classic Mac OS era. There was also a place that you could put some text that was useful, and that was the Notepad desk accessory. One of the things that would be, I suppose, a problem with Teach Text in the earliest Mac OS days before multitasking is if you opened up Teach Text, you're not doing anything else. And it's a very basic application. So the Notepad, while not quite as robust as Teach text and not allowing you to save files out to your desktop and then put them on a disk and move them elsewhere would give you basically all of the same word processing functionality while you were using another app, and so that you could use it as, uh, well, as a notepad, a place to copy and paste snippets or, uh, you know, generally just move text between your apps in an easier way. It was not a document-based model, but it was that text-centric model. Now, Brian, you've put something here in our outline that I don't know the history of, and it says that apparently uh, part of Notepad was outsourced at some point, and that, uh, I guess, again, in the About box, always check the About box, it sometimes indicated that it was written by Lite Software for Apple Computer in the early 90s, so perhaps just a couple versions of the notepad, got some outside development love?
1: Yeah, my guess is that around System 7, when multitasking was basically a part of the system, it didn't even need a separate multi-finder, the concept of desk accessories kind of went away and got rewritten as full-fledged apps. And my guess is this uh, outside or Potentially inside, as we will get to in a minute, but a, a separate software development entity may have handled the transition from of notepad from a desk accessory to a full-fledged application, even though some of the things that you just said, like not actually having a discrete uh file saving model, it's still all saved down to one like store of what your notepads uh individually said and contained. Um and my guess is this light software company or group of people uh, handled that transition around System 7. And uh, as we'll see in a bit, maybe some of the other desk accessories or System 7 components.
0: And like you said, yes, there was obviously the data in the notepad. It was persistent, and therefore it had to be saved to disk somewhere. And it was saved to the basically monolithic notepad file in the system folder, which I think also if you went there and double-clicked on it, it would just open the notepad. Is that right?
1: Maybe, again, this is one of those things that double-click might only work in this post multi-finder era of System 7 when the notepad was actually a full-fledged APPL application.
0: I guess at some point, once it got broken off like that, it was no longer part of the system software per se because I'm I'm looking here in in my emulation environment, and I found a notepad file. It has the right little icon, which is like um, it it's like school ruled paper where you have the blue lines and the little going across and the pink line going down, and it's got little tear off like you pulled it out of a notebook. Um, I double clicked it and it said uh, it could not be opened because the application notepad could not be found. So. I'm missing the notepad on this installation of Mac OS 9. Interesting. (laughs) What I do have, though, on this installation of OS 9 is, I guess, another spiritual successor. uh, And something that was, again, enabled by taking the mental model of desktop accessories, but the fact that they are now full-fledged applications. And that is the much-beloved and much-maligned Stickies app. (laughs) So Stickies was launched in System 7.5 and it says here on the page and and I did a little double take it's true still in macOS today even in even in Mojave
1: right even in Mojave on my current laptop which has Mojave installed it's right there in in applications not even in utilities or anything right there in the applications folder
0: Okay so um Stickies was a great user interface uh, advancement because it brought these little tiny mini windows that had effectively all of the power of like of a teach text or a notepad. Um, You could even change, uh, you could change the font for a note and they had like no window Chrome, no borders. I guess they had tiny little title bars so that you could still window shade them into, into nothingness and they would just live as this separate class of of floating windows on your Mac desktop. And they could uh, I think they could be set to either float above or layer with all of the other windows, which gave them a lot of flexibility. And as they were so useful that people started putting everything in them. And let's see. I'm not entirely sure that I know where the data for stickies lives, unlike the notepad file, which was kept in your system folder. And this was part of the kind of, I think, scary part about people putting their life into stickies is that, yeah, it just worked. And whenever you turned on your Mac back came all the stickies, but they were like, they were not saved somewhere where you could lay a hand on them. And it's not like, you know, it's not like Apple Notes now where you think, ah, yeah, I don't know exactly where the the file that corresponds to this note in the Notes app on my Mac or on my iPhone or my iPad exists, but I know that it's all synced through iCloud. And I know that I have several devices that I can open up and confirm that the data is in multiple on multiple devices and therefore also safely in the hands of Apple somewhere. Stickies was just, it was just this sort of data dump. <laughs> yeah, um,
1: I had the same thought as you, and I was looking through the uh, the classic Mac emulation that we've got going and as far as i can tell it's it's preferences file oh boy uh and and like you were talking about with notepad you could have you know as many individual stickies as you wanted but you couldn't really save them out to discrete files they were part of this monolithic data store that uh is lumped in with something that you never think to have like uh, data data, right? Preference files were more about settings and, you know, like flags, not not the like data contents of the application.
0: So I just searched around my Mac right now, and I think, but I don't know <laughs> if I found the corresponding thing now, uh, which is in my user library, there's a file with no extension called Stickies Database, camel cased. <laughs> that must be it because I just opened the Stickies app. And it says that it was modified within the last minute. Okay, so that's good. That's the Stickies app, though, in current macOS, which actually looks shockingly like um, the one in classic macOS. Even has the same kind of mini window bars. They're not title bars because there's no title in them. And here's an odd and backwards comparison to the classic macOS it, the, the stickies in classic MacOS had two window widgets, a zoom and a close, but no window shade. I, so I might have misspoken uh, a few minutes ago. And double clicking their title bars in classic MacOS does nothing. They are they're expanded always. In current MacOS, MacOS 10, there are three widgets. They are in the classic macOS positions with the close close box on the left and the other two on the right. (laughs) There is a window shade widget, and it works, and it puts the first line of the note in this tiny, tiny window shaded window that you can drag around your macOS 10 desktop. It is completely backwards and bizarre (laughs) that that feature did not exist in the classic macOS and does exist in macOS 10 to this day also still lingering in the background in mac os 10 to this day is the completely different stickies dashboard widget which each sticky is an individual instantiation of the widget and i have no idea where that data lives and i i also knew people who put things in there and i'm like do not trust that that could just go away (laughs)
1: before we leave the stickies app it's worth pointing out that uh we do know exactly where the code for the original classic Mac stickies came from. It came from an Apple employee. Ooh, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly. Jens Alfke. I don't know if if the J is pronounced or not. Jens, Jens. We're
0: going to have that problem come up later in the show. So don't worry. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to say it
1: came from Apple employee Jens Alfke, who was running a software development side project uh, away from Apple. His side business was called Antler Software, and he had written this program called Antler Notes. And he wrote a really fascinating blog post that uh, he wrote in 1997, which is still live on his website today. We'll put a link in the show notes. And the primary focus of this blog post is what people in his position should do when they have created software intellectual property on the side, but uh, their employer who is also a software development company, uh, claims ownership over it, or in his lucky case, wants to outright acquire it from him. So that's the the broad focus of this blog post, but it is uh, led off with the anecdote of this is what happened with Stickies. Stickies was his program, Antler Notes, that he developed outside of Apple. And then he mentions Apple wanted to add a whole bunch of features to System 7.5, including the stickies thing. So they just outright bought it from him. What makes this interesting for a couple of reasons is I guess it became common knowledge. Cause I remember when stickies came out that there was a famous Easter egg that if you type capital a antler with an exclamation point in a blank sticky and hit return, you would see the original logo for his software company antler notes. It would become the background of your sticky. Um, secondly, he kind of mentions, like as, a, as an aside, that other pieces of System 7.5 were outright acquired like stickies, including Find File, SuperClock, and Scrapbook. And to tie this all together with something we were talking about before, if you go into a post-System 7.5 version of Scrapbook and go to About, you get the same uh, written by Light software for Apple Computer. And in my cursory Googling, I don't know anything about this light software company, but based on this blog post, I wonder if it is a collection of people who worked for Apple, but also had this business on the side. And so uh, they could work out this kind of subcontract agreement where they created or rewrote, I guess, in the case of Notepad and Scrapbook, the, the full application versions. A lot of little history wrapped up in this very simple application.
0: For other fine utility software, call Light Software. And as a phone number, a fax number, an Apple Link address.
1: Which may have been eWorld? I'm not sure.
0: I don't know. Uh, and then it just says internet, colon, <laughs> light.sw <Light.sw@applelink.apple.com>. at <laughs> Yeah. All right, now we can move on from stickies and back to the main lightweight word processor, that comes with all Macs. So we had that aside because these other apps existed in sort of earlier versions of, of the classic Mac, although stickies only from 7.5. But now we're back in the System 7 era, and Teach Text lives on but under a new name, which is Simple Text. And this was the program that I was familiar with because I sort of joined the world of Mac users at System 7 and but occasionally you would see teach text around on older machines or because it was bundled with the system software and you know is not commercial software it's just it's just a very lightweight word processor and maybe you wanted to make sure triple d- extra sure that someone could read your readme file it would just get like thrown in as as an aside on with software and copies just went around uh but simple text was its successor uh you know it grew in size a little bit and grew in features as well uh but was still a very lightweight app the version that i have with mac os 9 was 120k which is perfectly reasonable Size for a lightweight application. Uh, some of the things that it gained were of course, the full uh, full font and style control. You were no longer limited to just plain Geneva text. And so in that respect, it did move from being effectively a plain text editor. To a more of a word processor model. If you didn't, if you had not purchased a word processor like the ones that we're going to talk about later in the show, you could get a lot done. I mean, if you wanted to print stuff and have any control over your page layout, you were going to be uh, unhappy. But if you were just trying to format your words nicely for looking at them on screen, simple text was totally good. It could even in some of the Later versions could embed picked files, which you would definitely see, especially in those read-only readme files, where you could have a very nicely formatted document with sections, with a logo for the piece of software that you are learning about. Um, And later on, you could even embed QuickTime objects. So this is getting to be more of a multimedia file format as opposed to just a plain text document. So if I had one of these and brought them over onto, uh, you know, put them through the little uh, Unix sharing wormhole uh, from Sheepshaver to my current Mac setup, I do not think that they would open quite so seamlessly as that plain text file where I just type you know asdf and hit save. <laughs> uh, that worked flawlessly, but some of these additional features began to make things more complex. And as far as I know, it you know. The simple text format was a standard format for the Mac, but it was not a standard universal format like some of the rich text formats that we'll talk about a little bit later on in the OS X era. Um, One other thing that links simple text back to teach text, uh, you could really say that it's the same app, a later version of the same application, because it does have the same creator code. So it is still TTXT. The T still stands for teach, but the application's name has changed. They did not make an STXT uh, way of differentiating between these. The notion being that because it was system software, you are going to only have one version, hopefully the latest version, running on your machine, and that it should seamlessly handle all of those readme files and text files that had been created in the six system versions previous. And one final feature of simple text that I think we've mentioned before, especially how we as children loved to drive people nuts with it, is the fact that simple text, once uh, plain talk became a feature of macOS and the text-to-speech, the speak text option. That was a menu item in simple text. Any Mac has simple text. You can sit down, you can type in arbitrary text, you can hit speak text, and Fred will start speaking it to you at the system volume. And, like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> um, the only way that you can stop people from doing this is to get them to change their behavior <laughs> because there's no way that you can, like, rip simple text out of the heart of the system. I mean, yes, you could delete the application off of a Mac that you had in your control, but that was obviously going to run you into some problems when you needed to read a readme file, for example. So uh, this, op- this feature came along for the ride and... And because we were rotten kids, we loved to type weird things into it and uh, and annoy our friends, parents, and teachers.
1: I'm guilty of that in, I think, all three of those categories.
0: <laughs> and let's say, uh, th- this has not changed. I mean, here we are. It's 2018, almost 2019. And uh, now in shortcuts on iOS, there's a speak text. and you can go in there and put in any arbitrary text that you want and you can have it use the Siri voice and you can speed it up and you can slow it down and it's still entertaining to me. (laughs) All right, uh, to close
1: out this section on Apple's first-party text editors that came bundled with the system, we should talk about what we are left with today, Text Edit, And uh, this appeared with the very first versions of Mac OS X, uh, public beta onward to today's Mojave. And uh, it came on along with the Next Step and uh, Unix-based operating system, OpenStep, etc., that Apple acquired when it acquired Next, and of course was the foundation for Mac OS 10. Uh, but similar to all the way back to Teach Text, one of the cool things about text Edit is that Apple also provides its source code for developers today to use as a reference when they create Mac apps. And we'll put a link in the show notes. It is still live at developer.apple.com, though there is a note that it hasn't been updated since macOS 10.9. Though I don't know if TextEdit, the application itself, from a user standpoint, has uh, changed in any way since macOS 10.9, which I think was Mavericks.
0: And the important reason for including this and including that source is because TextEdit from macOS 10.0 was an example of a Cocoa app. So to give developers an idea of how Cocoa worked and how it was integrated in the system, that was the reason for including text edit and for distributing its source code. And really, it's one of those things where it shows you, again, the simplicity, where there's basically... There are system text editing APIs where... They were trying to show developers: Look, you can do this in Carbon, but you're going to be bringing over. You're going to have to write a text editor all for yourself. Whereas in Cocoa, you can basically say, "Put text editor here." <laughs> yeah, it, it would essentially import all of the basic functionality of the main window of the text edit application, including all of the like system wide shortcuts. That apply there, including because of its next step heritage, the weird Emacsy Unix kind of stuff that is available in every Cocoa compliant text field on OS X to this day. And also because of the shared heritage on iOS. So there was just an article on Mac stories. I want to say within the past week that got some buzz from some other like classic mac and old timer kind of people uh because federico vitchi was say he was extolling the virtues of editing text on ios with a keyboard because obviously it gives you many many more shortcuts and some of these are the common like text selection shortcuts that we're used to like holding down option and shift with the arrow keys to move in different ways but then there are these weird ones that have these unix uh type flavor to them and he didn't include my favorite one which is Control t are you familiar with this one brian i am not but is it the same as command t from the classic mac no
1: (laughs) oh okay
0: put your cursor between any two letters in a word not in google docs because google docs is not yeah right. right like right. in an actual native Mac application in TextEdit, for example, and hit Control T, and the two characters that are on the opposite sides of the insertion point will flip back and forth. Yes, they do. And it's got it's got all the other ones that that uh, you know the Unix things. What is it? It's like yoink um, or whatever it's called, um, where you like delete everything to the end of the line with with all these different control key things. These were all bundled into TextEdit. They all are part of that Cocoa API and Cocoa Touch API even as well on iOS. And so they're still all baked in there. And that's part of what TextEdit shows off, is the complete feature suite of basic text editing on Darwin-based operating systems, really. So both the Mac and iOS. And uh, I
1: wanted to talk about TextEdit a little bit just because I've tried out a whole bunch of text editors and some are, are great. And sometimes they're like, it's just feels too heavy for something very simple, like a, a quick scratch pad type task. So I've always come back to text edit. And I think I had those roots from teach text a little bit and mostly simple text, like Ed had said. Uh, so I had a tough time <laughs> at the Mac OS 10 tra- transition, mostly for what do I do for quick text editing? Because text edit at the start of OS X, probably just because OS X itself was very heavy with a lot of uh, graphical user interface effects that were taxing on my hardware at the time. But uh, by default, text edit kind of looks more like a word processor uh, than a, just a text editor. It shows rulers. Um, it loads by default in the RTF rich text format.
0: It looks a lot like some of the word processors that we're going to talk about did circa 1994-95. So it's even more advanced than some of these word processing apps were in the late 80s and very early 90s. But it's got that aesthetic of having a very full-functioning toolbar by default, but everything is really small and grayscale. Right. Yeah. Like there are font menus, sought for uh, choosing typeface and the style and the size and color and bold, italic, underline and justification of the text and spacing and bulleting. But they're all like they're all like twelve point high, and there's no big colored icons. And then there's a tab bar that shows all the tabs by default, which I think is a little weird and messy. But that's it. It's the whole thing just packed into one window. TextEdit grew in functionality
1: uh, mostly by what file types it could read and even write to or you know save changes to as uh, macOS progressed in 10.3 it could read .doc files Microsoft Word In 10.4 .docx the like the new flavor of Microsoft Word that's like layered with XML and is increasingly hard to decipher and even in 10.5 open office files uh, which I guess you know is is kind of a blip in word processing history because Google Docs has all but swept that market away. Um, but all throughout all of this, I once I learned how to make text edit in Mac OS 10, Mac OS, whatever, uh, look and feel like simple text and teach text of your, I haven't gone back. and it's a, you know you can turn off rulers in a view menu. you can turn off basically any of the the document window Chrome. And then in the preferences, you just make it default to plain text instead of rich text. And if you use it for HTML editing, as I do sometimes, uh, you tell it to ignore HTML uh, markup tags as rendering instructions and just show the tags anyway, making it look like you're actually editing an HTML document. And uh, if you want to go the extra mile, set the default font too. Uh, I use a monospace font, but you could set it to Geneva. (laughs) but uh once you do that i tell you uh on any modern mac machine that's capable of running a modern mac os uh text edit launches like before the bounce finishes in the dock and you're right there ready to write with none of the like window chrome of of a full fledged word processor
0: yeah i had an awkward transition period early on in mac os 10 because i i didn't quite understand the real distinction between word processing and and text editing, um, and that I needed a third-party text editor because I always had simple text. And if I wanted to do word processing, I opened up Clarisworks or Apple Works, because that was my word processor. And this notion that the bundled text editor was not behaving like a text editor anymore kind of infuriated me. And Every once in a while, you know, maybe you would like uh, update the operating system and it would go back to defaulting to RTF and you would have to hit command shift T to switch between the modes. And it got really frustrating until I realized that what I really wanted was, well, I want pages as my word processor and I want you know, BBEdit or something like that as my text editor and to kind of just leave text edit out of it um and to really open text edit very infrequently um however though as we were talking i was just looking around for you know what are some of the interesting features beyond just like open a window and type that are available in text edit and i opened up the format menu and there's something there called make layout vertical and i i chose that And the whole thing turned 90 degrees on its side, and the ruler goes over to the left, and the text goes to the right. And this is completely comical in English, because you just start typing, and it starts— it's just like the whole window has been rotated. But then I realized, oh, but it's going from the right to the left. This is like how in Japanese, sometimes a document is written in this way— where they write vertically, but they start at the right-hand side of the page and go over. And I was like, I wonder if that feature existed in text edit oh, 10 years ago or more. No, 12 years ago, when I was taking Japanese in undergrad, I would have really loved that feature because I don't think I had any word processor, qua word processor, that allowed me to type in that way. And I know that I typed documents for Japanese class and that occasionally we had to do vertical format documents. Um, and, you know, you would just handwrite them because there was absolutely no other way. But maybe it was just sitting there in text at it all along. So it it, it always continues to surprise. You know, th- these little bundled apps may have just exactly the feature that you need. Let's close the curtain
1: on bundled quote-unquote text editor apps, and get into first-party and popular third-party full-fledged word processors. Because there were a few.
0: So the first one that, of course, comes to mind both chronologically and because it's right there in the name is MacWrite, which launched along with the original Macintosh. Uh, MacWrite and MacPaint were the flagship first-party applications uh, being written by Claris inside of Apple, At that point where they were still 100% in-house, and then Apple thought that they would become completely independent, and then they sort of got stuck in limbo as the subsidiary, and now they're FileMaker. (laughs) A couple couple things happened in between, but that's that's the long and short of it. They also, of course, developed MacDraw, which I think came just a little bit post-launch, because the first... Applications were the word processor and the bitmap drawing application, and these were what sold the Mac. These are what sold the GUI for showing you how you could do word processing in a black text-on-white background environment and how good that looked, just like you could on a Xerox Alto, um, but those were not really commercially available. <laughs> and Mac Paint, which, of course, you can think of the um, the Japanese woodblock uh, image and Hello were the, the iconic things that were created to show off the graphical capability of the Mac. And these were, by necessity, two completely separate applications. And we'll focus on MacWrite. Uh, like I said, it was developed by Claris, and we did a show on Claris Works, which we'll link in the show notes. And one tidbit that I wanted to bring out of that, though, was the fact that ClarisWorks was originally going to be called MacWorks to tie it even more closely to the heritage of MacWrite, except that the MacWorks name had already been trademarked for a completely different piece of software that was used to emulate Lisa applications on the Mac. (laughs) Which, boo, because that was not really useful anymore. Now I'm gonna I'm putting this in here because I want to say that I have never really used MacWrite, and I tried to use MacWrite in preparation for this show. If you go to uh, Macintosh Garden, you can get a nice download that has five different versions of MacWrite all in one little .dot sit bundle. But I could not get it to launch on practically anything, so. My stable classic Mac environment is through Sheepshaver and it's running Mac OS 9. and these apps are too old to run properly in Mac OS 9. And so I put them into the basilisk and they all crashed.
1: And it's hard to say whether that's them or the basilisk. <laughs> Very hard to say.
0: However, um, there are a couple versions'll we'll link to a MacWrite 1.0 software emulator that's available on the Internet Archive. And because of the stripped-down system that's used on the emulator and just the limited feature set of MacWrite 1.0 itself, this is very, very basic. And We were just talking about uh, the current version of uh, of TextEdit and all the things that it can do, and its predecessor, SimpleText, and the relatively robust amount of things that it can do. And then you look at TeachText... MacWrite 1.0 was a lot closer to teach text than it is to text edit. So almost comically limited by our current conception of what a word processor is. So you have basic font styling and tab ruler. That's basically the whole interface. Uh, In the one that we're linking to, the only three fonts that you can choose are Chicago, Geneva, and Monaco. I think, again, because that's what was available in the system package there. So if you had installed additional fonts on your Mac, they would be available. And you could select multiple fonts within a document, and you could have multiple font sizes within a document. So you could do some basic styling. Uh, But then there are these buttons for text spacing. And as far as I can tell, they only apply to the entire document. So you could not have one double-spaced paragraph and one single-spaced paragraph. It's all or nothing. It's effectively applying a style to the paragraph as it, all of the paragraphs throughout the document. Uh, So it's really interesting to look at that because I think, I think looking back at Mac Paint, yes, it's like a one bit, bitmap graphics software, which is extremely limited by our current standards. But you can you can still kind of see the power in it or the relative power that it was offering at the time. Whereas looking at MacWrite, it's almost so simple that, and because we do so much with text on all of our devices still to this day, whether we're doing text editing or word processing or sending iMessages or email or whatever, it's such a limited suite of Features that it almost doesn't feel like an app, much less a flagship app. If it had anything going for
1: it, it must have been the first mainstream application of WYSIWYG text, quote unquote, layout, in that you could have multiple different typefaces and each one perhaps with their own sizing or uh, the simple formatting like bold or italic. And it would look that way on the screen and it would look that way coming out of your image writer or laser writer.
0: That is exactly it. It was the as a piece of software it is really unimpressive by today's standards but and and because we look at it through that lens of like what's it doing on screen that it, it just seems like so little and we can't even put it in the historical context but it is very apple like it is the combination of the software and the hardware that makes it far more than just what teach text was Or what simple text was a couple years later. Because, as you said, you could lay it out exactly as you wanted and then hold a physical copy of it in your hand. And if you had a laser writer, it looked really sharp and good. Yeah, And that was the thing that was miles beyond just typing green letters on black in a word processor that came five years prior, right? Because if all you were doing was going to read it on the screen, yeah, The, the new text and the higher resolution screen looked nice. Uh, probably the editing features were comparable. Um, but it was that ability to then bring your word processing documents into the physical world. You know, people called it a killer app and that was the thing that did it. If you just had a Mac with no printer, it wasn't doing you a whole heck of a lot of good. But if you were, but if you were in an academic environment or you were in a business environment, where you were actually be able to create these things with it, then MacWrite was huge. So, like I said, I, there are multiple versions of MacWrite available out there on Macintosh Garden. I would love to do a grand comparison of all of them and all of their features, but like I said, they are they're big crashers. <laughs> um, so this is more of a high level history. MacWrite Two was the next big version of it, and that's two with Roman numerals, like the Apple Two, like. The iPhone 10, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, then in later versions, 3, 4, and 5, they came to their senses and went with, or maybe they still had the Apple 3 fear um, oh. <laughs> and went back to the Arabic numerals 3, 4, and 5. There was also a separate uh, separate product called MacWrite Pro, which had an expanded feature set and was aimed for businesses. Um, and that's interesting because it's one of the it's one of I think the earliest pro designations from Apple but again we see that same they've had these same kind of naming ideas for a long time Um, so that was part of the MacWrite suite of products Uh, but like we said uh, we were not big MacWrite users I was a big Clarisworks word processing user and the interface that carried over from, I guess, probably MacWrite 4 or 5 into ClarisWorks, what, it was designed to be very similar. So ClarisWorks took that MacWrite interface, and they were also standardizing around the FileMaker interface, which, gosh, you can still see if you get FileMaker these days. <laughs> and so they wanted that to be a seamless transition, if not in the names, because they couldn't do that, Um but it sounds like, based on the history of Clarisworks article that uh, we'll link in the show notes, the code base was not shared at all. They totally rewrote the Clarisworks word processing engine, but they deliberately designed it to look like MacWrite because, well, they could because they were within Apple. They had every right to do so. In fact, they would have had every right to use the code base, but they decided that that was not how they wanted it to go. They wanted to modernize it and to... Integrate it with the other features of of works but I do remember that interface very fondly, um, and I think that the works word processing interface looked very clean in that same way that TextEdit still kind of does today, and that many word processors do not. Um, but we remember those interface elements. Um, Brian, you had a, some that you particularly remembered. This first one I'll talk about, I think.
1: I may mostly remember from Clarisworks, kind of tying into what you just said, borrowing interface elements from MacWrite to achieve that continuity. I know that our computer had some earlier version of MacWrite, which doesn't appear to have this interface element, but along the bottom edge of the document window with uh, the horizontal scroll bar were some zoom options and there were little... 16 by 16 black and white icons of just like jagged mountain ranges. And one was like two peaks from far away. And one was a valley like zoomed up for zoom in and zoom out.
0: But it was like a separated control where they almost, they, they, they lined up so that the the mountains went one into the next.
1: That's right. Um, so I definitely remember that interface element again, primarily from Clarisworks, but um, as we can link to borrowed from MacWrite. But uh, the other interface element that I definitely remember because it seemed so clever that, and I don't think it was carried over into ClarisWorks in any version, was the vertical scroll bar. The box, the grabber that you could grab and drag, displayed the current page number right in the middle. So you could, you know, you could always use the box in the vertical scroll bar as a, at a glance, um, where am I in the document? Am I near the beginning? Am I near the end? But in MacWrite, I think since the original version, if you had a multi-page document and you wanted to know literally what page you're on and maybe the footer or the header with the page number was out of view, you could just look at the scroll bar.
0: Yeah, that's very clever. Uh, And of course, the modern version of that is like if you grab a scroll thumb and as you drag the thumb, the page numbers appear like to the left of it. But This is so elegant. It's like, we have this space. Why not use it? I'm sure it was a total hack, though, because you would have to literally overwrite something. You would have to query the position of the scroll bar and then literally overwrite onto the interface control in a zone of the window that you would usually not have the ability to overwrite. So uh, beautiful little hack. Um, that's, That's very cool. So let's move on from interfaces that we loved to interfaces that we grew to hate. (laughs) And this, of course, is the part where we must talk about Microsoft Word. (laughs) So Word has been on the Mac practically forever. Uh, Version 1 for Mac was released in 1985, so just the second year of the Mac's existence, uh, and was considered a really good Mac software citizen for several years. There were regular releases, major releases of Word up through version 3, 4, 5. People really liked the ability to use Microsoft Word. And, of course, the fact that it had a portable document format that could be shared with people who were using, let's be honest, DOS computers or, uh, early windows PCs. And that was something that gave it, gave you even additional flexibility. And of course, um, you know, this was sometimes difficult for people on the other side, you know, you would have Mac and you, you give someone a disc and they'd put it in a windows PC and would go, this is, this is what now. (laughs) But if you had someone who had a windows, uh, or DOS formatted, uh, disc, Stick it in your Mac, gets that little PC icon on it, you know, in the System 7 era. And you just go, yeah, well, yeah, there's a Word document on here. I can open it in Word 5 for Mac. No problem. But I think Word is also synonymous with bloatware on the Macintosh. Okay, so um, we didn't have any Christmas theme for this episode, despite the fact that we're releasing it in December. But I do remember, and I'm going to find this. That sometime in the mid-90s, David Pogue, who wrote the Desktop Critic Backpage column for Macworld, did a Christmas Carol parody uh, column for the December issue where it was a parody song to the tune of Jingle Bells, and... It was about the new version of Microsoft Word, quote, coming on 10 CDs and requiring an ungodly amount of RAM, 60 megabytes of RAM. (laughs) So not far-fetched by our current standards, but um, it was known for spiraling out of control and then its cross-platform nature coming back to bite it.
1: So I think there was some discussion in the Mac community recently about like what was the golden age of Microsoft Word right before it crossed over into being this uh, bloated cross-platform thing that tried to hit a low common denominator of different operating systems and different UX cases. And uh, it's somewhere in this uh, version
0: 4 era. Some people said, oh, Word 5 was the last good one. And, and uh, other people chimed in on Twitter and said, I think you mean 4. <laughs> and so I went back and and launched a few of these early versions of Word and looked at some screenshots as well. And these launch fortunately <laughs> for me. Um and I think one of the key things that happened here there were there were two major developments from 4 to 5 and 5 to 6. So the 4 to 5 transition included the introduction of this screen-wide floating toolbar that lived outside of the document windows because it was to the point where if you had a sensibly-sized document window, you couldn't fit all of the controls that Microsoft wanted to cram into the toolbar. And so they said, okay, we'll make it just go across the entire screen. And if you need another row, we'll add on another row. And this was word working its way down into palette hell (laughs) um i think that you know maybe we can find some and put in the show notes there are fun screenshots from i want to say like the late 90s later versions of word both on pc and the mac where if you set the default to like show all of the palettes when it launches there's like a two by two inch square that you can type in and the rest is just like overblown interface junk So it was headed that way uh, in version 5, even though that was still an all-Mac code base written by an all-Mac team. And then the thing that people say was, you know, the real end of it was when they wrote Word 6, which basically they said, why are we maintaining the separate Mac version? Let's just take all the Windows features and throw them into the Mac version one for one. Uh, We don't need to redesign it to be a Mac-like application. It doesn't have to look like it runs on this computer. It just has to make Word happen. And that was where people said, okay, I'm, I'm done. This is not a Mac application anymore. <laughs> um, and it looked pretty bad, and uh, it had that reputation of being, because it was effectively ported uh, as opposed to written, that was part of the reason that it was such a resource hog. And looking at it going, my goodness, you know, teach text is 20k. <laughs> yeah. And this app is tens of megabytes is constantly running out of ram just because i started typing a second paragraph. What a garbage piece of software. <laughs> and that was where it stayed, where the mac versions of word stayed until what, like maybe 2 or 3 years ago?
1: I don't even know if i can answer that because i haven't used word in such a long time. But uh, didn't even two or three years ago where they kind of recommitted to the Mac, it's also as this kind of like everyone has a cloud platform, including Microsoft. So now it's almost like these pieces of software are consumers from uh, file systems and data in the cloud.
0: Yeah. But the thing that Microsoft did do recently is they did a whole re-architecting of Word, whole re-architecting of Office, and they started with the Windows versions, Um, but Part of that mission from the outset was to have a common code base for all of the underlying engine and features of Office. And then to have separate Mac and Windows teams that wrote the UI on top of that to make them Windows-like and Mac-like, but also to have sort of a unified branding, like with the colors. So one of the weird things that Word does now is, by default, uh, all of the window chrome is blue because that's, like, the brand color of Word. But not on the Windows version, to my knowledge. But on the Mac version, you can go into Preferences and say, no, please give me a regular aqua window, which I do <laughs> when I have to use Word. The bottom bar is blue, which still actually looks pretty good. And, of course, you have the ribbon, um, which is it's fine. I tend to collapse it most of the time. Um, and then it just kind of looks like a text-based toolbar, and you can pop it down when you need it. Uh, the one thing that drives me bananas, this is like this is like the flip side of putting the page number in the scroll bar in MacWrite, where you're like, ah, you've hacked on top of the basic window chrome, but this is good. In current versions of Word, there are these things that are like quick access toolbar or something that lives... In the title bar component of the window, I don't know how they've how they've hacked this up. You can remove all of them except for the little like down arrow that says customize quick access toolbar. So it basically fades away on the left hand side. On the right hand side in the title bar Chrome is your search within document field, which is fine. That's a nice to have always available kind of thing to the right of that is this goddamn smiley face. (laughs) It is a smiley face with a little down arrow menu next to it. There are two things in this menu. Smiley face, tell us what you like. Frowny face, tell us what can be better. I can tell you what can be better. You can get rid of this smiley face. Are you kidding? When you said that,
1: I thought maybe it's like an emoji picker, or worst case, it's to bring up the modern equivalent of the paperclip. It's a feedback widget. Oh, and you can't turn it
0: off? You can't turn it off. It's in every single Word document window. Um. And as far as I can tell, you can't turn it off. I saw this for the first time when they put out beta versions. So when they were going from the old looks like a non-retina kind of iOS 6 Mac ugly thing of the previous generation of Word to the new one, which are, you know, they're light, they have nice flat design uh, with those bold colors, blue for Word, green for Excel, red for PowerPoint. That was up there in the beta version, and I thought, okay, yes, I am running free beta versions of all of the Office Suite. You gave them to me for free, which was nice, and it's beta software, so you want to have the beta feedback tool available in every single window, right? Presumably because also if you trigger it from that window, it would send some diagnostic information like this is the document that he's viewing right now. Nope, still there, final versions, cloud version, whatever I'm paying for it drives to me mad,
1: and it's only like it's a binary. it's like smile, I like
0: it, frowny, I don't,
1: yeah, that's it,
0: oh man, anyway, do we have anything to say about classic word? I'm sorry, I went on a modern word rant, but um maybe that's just, maybe that'll be just the nostalgia that people need for you know, remember when we hated Microsoft in nineteen ninety
1: six yeah, um, I basically just wanted to say that uh. I think you can trace a very clear uh, correlation between Microsoft Word gets more popular, perhaps in spite of its UI and UX decisions at the time that MacWrite hits its uh, decline. And sure, that's a very easy thing to make, like "duh," Microsoft Word became the the leader, and MacWrite was very niche and with you know just on the Mac platform. But I think. Uh, if you want to look a little farther, I guess this is about both pieces of software. Uh, there is, a, it, it. MacWrite was in a tough spot where uh, initially it was the killer app, right? Like everyone was just expected to get it. And then uh, competition happened and they tried to keep up, but I think competition was always outpacing MacWrite to say nothing of its weird state within Apple where it's like, it's part of Claris. Is Claris part of Apple? Is Claris, you know, fully independent? And I think that, like, there were too many bad things going on with MacWrite as Microsoft Word, both in its in its own right as a Mac app, but also its larger context in the world of your files will also be uh, compatible with PCs and DOS and, and the larger world, um, that really, like, MacWrite had no chance as Word got better. And it's it's sad because, as we've said, like, I think people's favorite versions of Word Whatever they may be, we're probably on par with what the version of Mac Write was at the same time. But uh, these competing factors led us to the, the situation we're in today.
0: Yeah. And it's exactly the same thing with pages, right? I mean, it's a great word processor, but it clearly doesn't get a whole lot of love within Apple. Updates are few and far between. When it gets rewritten, half the features go away, and people wonder: Is that ever coming back? And then, yes, seven years later, in some you know random Tuesday point release, uh, the feature that you wanted is it's back, guys. Uh, someone had enough time. Uh, you know they're they're allocated ten percent on on the pages team, and it happens eventually. Um, meanwhile, uh, you know. Ask a lot of people uh, who do a lot of heavy writing and are heavily invested in iOS. What is the best cross-platform word processor, not text editor, word processor for iOS? And almost to a one, they'll just say it's Word. And you can you can buy the cloud package for seven bucks a month, and you can have it on your Mac or Windows PC, and you can have it on your iPad. Just do it. So yeah, same exact thing in terms of uh, resourcing um where at Microsoft office is still you know it it's it's one of their tent poles
1: let's move on to another third party application and I'll take the lead on this one because this is what my family used we were not a Microsoft household um until it it was basically like you had to have Microsoft just to fit in which I think was high school for me
0: unless you had um what was it the um the suite of translator Plugins.
1: MacLink Plus.
0: MacLink Plus. That was it. There you go.
1: Yes. We were a big MacLink Plus household because, uh, in no small part, we were a WordPerfect household. And boy, looking back at it, WordPerfect was garbage. It was just like, <laughs> it had its own proprietary file formats and it was very siloed. And even, uh, talking WordPerfect on Mac to WordPerfect on PC or even WordPerfect version X on Mac to WordPerfect X plus one on Mac was a nightmare.
0: The only time that that happened with Word, I think, was that the mic or the Windows versions of Word got the DOC X formats before. Like I, there was like a year where you just couldn't open those on a Mac anymore, and that was a rough time. <laughs> yeah, but apparently, this happened all the time with WordPerfect, despite the fact that it was. Run by a single company.
1: Yes. Um, so I will gladly suggest that if you're interested in the history of WordPerfect and especially on other platforms, go to its Wikipedia page. I believe it begins by saying it comes out of Brigham Young University, which is, you know, a, a whole thing in itself. Um, but I, the the pull quote that I took from its Wikipedia page to say to you now here, is that development of WordPerfect for Macintosh did not run parallel to versions for other operating systems. It even used version numbers unconnected to contemporary releases for DOS and Windows. And that basically sums up the WordPerfect experience. Nothing was ever compatible with anything else.
0: The, the other thing that sticks out to me as I open up the Wikipedia page here is that uh, the common file name extension of WordPerfect documents is .wpd. Older versions of WordPerfect also used the extensions .wp, .wp4, .wp5, .wp6, and .wp7, which means, of course, that if you had the wrong version of the essay that you wrote, you're out of luck.
1: Yep. this I can tell you, this firsthand experience, that happened to me. Because we were locked into the WordPerfect ecosystem, so we kept buying the updates— But without the appropriate translators, which may have been on a different disk, or if MacLink Plus wasn't up to it, I couldn't open the essay I worked on two years ago for reference for an essay I was working on this year.
0: And see, this only happened to my family once when Lion came out and AppleWorks no longer worked. So
1: there's not a whole lot to say about WordPerfect outside of the fact that until Microsoft Word really took off, I guess WordPerfect was a dominant uh, industry leader because it did have versions for multiple platforms, including even the Apple 2. And for whatever reasons, uh, I, I read on its Wikipedia page that it had very robust macro support early, which, you know, if you do a lot of repetitive work in your word processing, as certain industries are wont to do, I think it mentions uh, government agencies or certain legal practices to this day are locked into WordPerfect because of <laughs> years of experience and muscle memory with macros. Uh it, it it was a major player until again, word showed up out of nowhere and quickly dominated the industry.
0: Yeah, I think that when my dad worked in the federal court in the late 90s, I'm talking like maybe 98, 99 around then, his judge's office was a hundred percent word perfect. And yeah, Unless those files have been, like, ported—I mean, presumably that was fine because everything—the master record for everything was on paper then. Oh, uh-huh. But, right, like, at what point do you get—like, do you transition out—I think now everything is PDF, PDF-A in the court systems. So, again, so you can be agnostic with what you created in, but, like, yeah, you could definitely get yourself— in a situation as a business or uh, any kind of office where you just need to maintain your continuity.
1: Well, according to its version history, uh, it really only had three big Mac releases, which again, are completely uncorrelated (laughs) to whatever its uh, history is on other platforms.
0: 5, 6, and 7, which were going on on the Windows side.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So version 1 was in 1988, and the final version, 35 e for enhanced, we don't know what those enhancements were, <laughs> were uh, less than 10 years later, 1997. Uh, the final thing I will say uh, in that I learned while doing the research for this episode is that one of the many reasons that it was woefully incompatible uh, with uh, other systems, let alone, you know, with itself, is that uh, it's behind the scenes formatting was done a lot like HTML, where if you maybe had one bold word in a paragraph. behind the scenes, it was inserting like a start bold character and an end bold character on either side of those words. and they were invisible hexadecimal characters. And I don't pretend to know what like Microsoft's doc or dot docx file formats do. because uh, sometimes you can try and if if something goes wrong and you maybe do open a word file in text edit, you get a whole bunch of gibberish. But I can tell you that I've spent so much time just watching the MacLink Plus progress bar attempt to chew through whatever WordPerfect has done, and uh, learning that it did it in this markup way, which I guess, or you know, I speculate, is called out on Word on Wikipedia for a reason because no one else was doing it that way, and that's why WordPerfect documents pretty much only stay in WordPerfect.
0: Yeah, and think about the fact that. At that point, 95, 96, HTML rendering was considered one of the more difficult computational tasks, right? Because of the way that the tags can nest and the way that, you know, something like um, a regular expression language is not sophisticated enough to parse out nested tags like in HTML or XML or whatever this word perfect markup probably was. And so that's part of the reason that unless you had the native word perfect code going through and doing that parsing could be extremely inefficient and noticeably slow.
1: I will say yeah, the app was the app's interface was perfectly fine and intuitive and probably adhered closely to the standards that most other Word processing apps looked like in those looked like in those days, but yes, it was noticeably slower than I think. The only thing other thing we had was ClarisWorks, noticeably slower.
0: Okay, well, let's at least finish on an application that I think is very well loved by those who used it, and that is Nicest Writer. Um, I'm probably going to mispronounce it at some point during this, but as I researched it, I found out that. The name of this program and the company is NISUS. That's N-I-S-U-S. However, I think every single person that I knew who used this software in the 90s called it NISUS Writer. (laughs) And there is a lot of really fascinating history to this program, which is a Mac-only word processor. And so I think that's a good reason to wrap up with it. So the main source for all of this information is this awesome ebook version of a full-length book that was written in the late 90s that's called The Nicest Way. Uh it's written by Joe Kissel who is still in this kind of business. So I think it was just last year that it was announced that he is now in charge of the Take Control ebook series which does DRM free ebooks all about the Mac and Mac software and iOS. Uh, it was part of the Tidbits publishing empire. And the angsts who run Tidbits decided to spin it off and hand it over to Joe, who had been doing a ton of the editing and writing work himself. Uh, and obviously, he's well suited to do that because he had been writing books about Mac software for many, many years. Decades. Um, so, at the beginning, though, of this book is a ch- an entire chapter essentially on the history of Nisus. So, the creator of Nisus Writer is I'm here's this JY problem. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the uh, more Polish pronunciation. I'm gonna say Jerzy uh, Lewak, or maybe Jerzy Luak. I don't know. He lives he lives in the United States now. Um, he lived in California when uh, Nysis was first created, uh, but he was born in Poland and raised in England and he's a physicist and he started writing software for the Apple II in the late eighties. And he founded a company called Paragon courseware and they were making educational software for the scientific fields that he was interested in and that he was teaching. Uh, So they got started on the Apple II and were an Apple shop, and then they made their first Mac application a few years later. It was called Tech Fonts, and it was filling a gap that he had in his work, which was that he loved the Mac, he loved that you could do GUI word processing on it, but he didn't have any way of inserting the formulas that he needed for his scientific papers. And so it was essentially an equation and formula editor. And at that point, he wanted to have a, a unified suite for all of this to work together, and he started developing a text editor. And I think really, at the beginning, it was a text editor as opposed to a word processor. And this was called the Quality Editor, uh, or Qued, uh Q-U-E-D. And some of the things that got built into this text editor were really robust find-and-replace features that carried on and were one of the hallmarks uh, once things became Nicest Writer. So Paragon had, I think, updated its name. They had dropped Courseware and were just a a general software company now. They had a larger portfolio, and they were working on their first true word processor based on the code base of (laughs) Quid. Um and they needed a name for it and someone on the team found this word nysis in an unabridged dictionary you will not find it like in the macOS system dictionary or a <laughs> smaller collegiate dictionary um i presume it's latin derived um there there's a delightful uh we'll, we'll link to uh the word nick page for it um, which has multiple definitions for it. The one that I found that I love the most is a striving, an effort, a conatus. Um <laughs> uh, so like, yeah, this is a word for people who love uh obscure Latin words, clearly. But that they decided that this was a, a good word to represent their their piece of software, um, presumably because it was some effort for them, and then you know, you could also create things with it. Uh, eventually it became their flagship piece of software and they renamed the company Nisus. So at launch, it got actually a lot of traction in the Mac community. You would think that coming into the word processing market in 1989 would be difficult because you're up against MacWrite in its heyday, still, Word in its heyday for Mac, and all the rest, right? Right, yeah. So... What were some of the things that gave Nisus its advantage? Well, it was just an incredibly powerful word processor. And I think, kind of like some of the features that you mentioned with WordPerfect, Brian, where it had, it put the emphasis on processing, where you could have automation and those kinds of things uh, and really do more with the words as opposed to MacWrite which was more focused on, well, you're just going to type the words individually, but then you're going to make them beautiful. So Nysis, of course, had the layout features that it needed to compete, but it had this really more advanced word processing engine underneath it. So this was released in 1989. Version 1.0 had unlimited undos. And 1989 you know the most powerful Mac
1: model is probably in the two series or an SE thirty. So it's you know it doesn't have a lot of power to work with or a lot of memory to keep your your editing history in.
0: Right. So it was doing some very clever things to be able to keep that either all in memory or still in a lightweight fashion written out to scratch on disk. Um. So that was pretty amazing. It also by default had multiple clipboards, ten clipboards that you could save stuff to. Um, I guess in the pre-System 7 era, this would help you stay all within your word processor instead of having to bounce out back and forth to the Notepad DA. Mm -hmm. And it had this feature called PowerFind, which is effectively as powerful as regular expressions but without learning all of the weird backslashy syntax that you have to do to write regular expressions, like in a Unix environment or wherever you're doing your, your regular expressions work. And I think it's, it's really interesting. So the PowerFind interface, you, it's basically a mode that you could turn on in their find and replace window. And it's really fascinating because... Um, you could either do regular find, power find, or power find pro. Power find pro let you type in the power find syntax yourself, so much more like regular expressions. Although they use brackets and colons and stuff instead of instead of backslashes. But what the regular power find had, it was a GUI, and it would put in tokens. That look very much like tokens that you would have in a modern app, like Shortcuts on iOS, or like Hazel on the Mac, where you can say match files that have this token pattern, and that token is any number, or any character, or a punctuation, or a word. Um, And it let you just insert these and come up with these advanced search and replace. So, extremely powerful in that respect. One of the things that was weird about PowerFind is that it was so powerful that it needed extra interface. And so for this very beloved Mac application, it has this sort of Windowsy behavior where when you invoke the PowerFind mode, the Find window gets its own menu bar <laughs> inside the window and it's rounded like a Mac menu bar. <laughs> Oh, that at least it's got that. <laughs> so it recognizes that it was a Mac app, but it you know, right? Like that was one of the things that, uh, you know, that was one of the key interface differences between Mac and Windows in the 90s. Is like, oh well, they put their menu bars inside the windows, so how do you even click on them? Her, 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> as opposed to the Mac putting them all the way at the top. They got some flack for some of the more page layouty stuff that was missing in version 1.0. Uh, so version 2.0 added the ability to have footnotes. A bunch of academics going, this is great, uh, but I need to put footnotes in my papers. <laughs> and in version 3.0, they added style sheets. So they had full style capabilities from version 1.0, but you couldn't apply them across the document. And that was starting to be more of a checkbox feature for word processors at that point. The The toolbars inside of Nysus, I think, look really good by default you get the ruler which has the um your text formatting options and the ones that you would expect tabs and justification and font size and spacing and they're all done in nice uh grayscale icons they're bigger they're almost like a 32 by 32 icon they're a little chunky (laughs) but it looks pretty clean and then over in the scroll bar uh, above the scroll bar are little buttons to switch between toolbar modes. this is where Nysus gets interesting, because there's a graphics palette. So this is at the point where it's starting to be expected that you can do integrated graphics within your word processor, as opposed to creating them in another program. Well, initially not being able to include them at all. Then later having those features of being able to embed them, but they have to be fully baked from another program. Mm -hmm. And now having essentially full drawing capabilities, text layout, word wrap, those kinds of things. So a very nice visual toolbar there that has all of your drawing tools and all of those modes for um, altering their location and appearance and that kind of thing. Then there are two more. (laughs) There's a sound toolbar and a video toolbar for embedding these things in your word processing documents. (laughs) So the way that this looks is it's like a tidier version of the ribbon interface that is now current in Microsoft office, because the reason that the ribbon looks terrible is because everything has an icon and a name and the layout is completely inconsistent. Some are labeled above, some are labeled below, some are labeled to the side. Some have large text, some have small text. This is very consistent and lets you toggle between those modes for space saving. But it also it also points to this underlying thing of why some people love Nisus and perhaps why some people didn't get into Nisus. Um, so here's a, a quote that I liked from the NISIS Way book. Nicest Writer has been called the Swiss army knife of Macintosh applications. It seems to have a tool to just do just about everything, including some things that are not obviously useful. (laughs) (laughs) I sometimes say that if I were stuck on a desert island with my Mac and just one application, it would have to be Nicest Writer. Uh, Joe goes on to talk about when he first visited uh, Nicest software, and then he did in fact wind up working there for a few years uh, in the product team. He said... I thought I knew Nysus pretty well already. I'd written quite a few macros and in general felt quite to be the pro. I was shocked and delighted by what I saw that week. These guys didn't just use Nysus as a word processor. They used it for everything. (laughs) They used it for calculating expenses, editing email, keeping track of their schedules, and much more. There was just so much you could do with a little creativity. And so I think that this is a debate that still goes on today, especially in the iOS world, is do you want compartmentalized apps or do you want everything apps? And especially
1: with the the recent discussion and community coming up around shortcuts, it's about extending things to be able to do from one context. Uh, like you, like the end of the quote you said, with a little creativity, you can kind of extend this word processor to do other things. And I feel like that's kind of the shortcuts mentality. With a little creativity, you can extend the, the functionality of one app to basically be used in a second app or for the second app to benefit from a first app, all while staying relatively within one context. And I would imagine that the same kind of people who are really into shortcuts or um, keyboard maestro are the same kind of people who love Nicest Writer.
0: Perhaps, yeah. But it's also that thing of maybe th- there's another philosophy around those apps which is that something like Keyboard Maestro is great because it can tie together two applications. Oh, uh huh. Right. And so you can pick the very best to do task A and the very best to do task B instead of editing your email in a word processor. I guess that's true. Um, instead of making a poster board in PowerPoint. Instead of uh, drawing a furniture layout in Excel. <laughs> right. These are all things I've known people to do. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> And that's the kind of thing where you get into this mindset of, I can do everything in here. Um, and I feel like there are these other applications that exist today where people think that or, or where they just have a gap, where they don't have a good application for what they need. And it's like, well, I need a drawing application, but I'm on Windows and the only thing I have is Office, so I'll draw everything in PowerPoint. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, a slide is a blank canvas that you can draw on and the app has drawing tools, but it wasn't made for that. And the same thing here. It's like, well, Nicest Writer has this whole suite of audio tools, but what are those things doing in your word processing document? I mean, I think maybe we can see, or maybe it was just ahead of its time, though, because, I mean, now you look at something like Pages which is currently subsuming the features of iBook's author, where, okay, maybe today it makes sense that something that really on the face of it, at its core, is most like a word processing document because it's a book. It's full of words. But it needs to have these multimedia features. It needs to have rich layout. It needs to have video. It needs to have sound. Those kind of things can all come together in one application if the output that you're looking for is a modern multimedia ebook. But that concept didn't exist for Nisus Writer. So people used it for different things. Um, But in that sense, I guess maybe it was forward thinking and modern. Now, I suppose for one, we should wrap up. But to wrap up on (laughs) Nisus Writer, I've been talking about it here. In the past tense, because I'm talking about the classic Mac version that I'm looking at in emulation here. But and and this is the point in the other ones where we would say, okay, well, and Word went to hell, and the last version of MacWrite was five, and the last version of WordPerfect was uh, version three point five e. It came out in nineteen ninety seven. So when was the last version of Nicest Writer? Um, October of this year. <laughs> <laughs> You can go to nices.com and they still exist. Nisus never went out of business. They are still developing a Mac-only word processor. It is Nisus Writer Pro and you can download or buy You can download a trial and you can buy it today.
1: I'm on the website right now and I'm looking at their kind of hero screenshot and it very much looks like a post-Yosemite Mac OS app in the, in the way that they've I maximized to full screen, the way the toolbar looks, uh these native controls.
0: Yeah, it kind of has a little bit of that look of an independent app where they're like maybe one style behind. So yeah, so more more, Yo- more Yosemite than Mojave, or like if you've ever used like BusyCal, and it's sort of just like, oh yeah, this is a Mac OS 10 app, but sort of maybe just a step behind. Like it has a lot of the sensibility of pages but also a lot of the sensibility of its heritage and also the sensibility of something like scrivener which is a a third party writing application hard to call it a word processor but definitely a writing application and it lives on which i think is really cool and i'm really happy that they're still making a business of a independent third party mac only Word processor. Um, and there's part of me that kind of wants to check it out.
1: <laughs> Ooh, I'm looking, I'm still looking around their website. They also have Nicest Writer Express, a kind of pared down version. I think uh, if, if we had recorded this a couple years ago, kind of like um, Text Wrangler to BB Edit.
0: There was also a version in the classic era. Uh, it was called Nicest Compact. And it was. Designed not to be pared down in terms of features, but it was a specially written version of Nisus for PowerBooks. Oh, that was designed to use as little RAM and access the hard drive as infrequently as possible to save battery. And in the version, uh, the regular version of Nisus that I have running in emulation, there's a little. Icon with a little eye information icon above all the other toolbar controls that brings down this very minimalist bar um, that tells you your current cursor position by character and line, the current page. Uh, it has a clock, so I guess you could kind of go like full screen. It says 622K, which I presume is its RAM usage, and it has a battery meter which currently says 0% because it's running on a desktop in emulation. But, like, push all the Chrome out of the way, get everything into RAM, and just just let you type on your PowerBook for as long as possible.
1: That is really cool.
0: And that's the kind of thing that, well, I mean, probably it's one of the things that kept them going on, right? Because you say oh my gosh, Word is such a resource hog. I can write for 30 minutes and then my power book is dead. (laughs) And they're like, well, if you buy Niceless Writer from us, it will squeeze out all the juice of your battery for hours on end. And you can, you know, you can go to the library or you can write on a plane and actually get your work done. And those are the kinds of features that Apple was not going to put into MacWrite and that Microsoft was certainly not going to put into Word. And um, whoever owned WordPerfect did not have their stuff together (laughs) for that kind of narrow-focused feature. But as a Mac-only development shop, that was what Nisus could offer. And uh, they're clearly still offering things that are uh, appealing and uh, effective for for Mac users, which is really cool.
1: It almost makes me wish that I had been a uh, dedicated Nisus user Back in the day.
0: Right, that we had like 25 years worth of NISUS files that presumably, unlike the uh, Clarisworks and Appleworks files, we could probably just open. Actually, I'm sure one of our listeners out there probably is a 25 or 30 year dedicated Nicest user, and uh, you should write in and tell us what how that has you know saved your bacon at some point because you were able to just open up an old Nicest file that you had from nineteen ninety four. So I think that's exactly where we should leave it. I'm very happy about this, though, because we usually <laughs> end our shows on such downers. It's like, and then all the software died, <laughs> and you can only run it in Basilisk if it doesn't crash. This is exactly the opposite. Um, everyone go check out Nisus Writer. And uh, do get in touch with us um, if you've got a long story of your word processing history. If you need to edit it in Nisus before you put it into the contact form on our website— you can do that. Uh, And of course, you can find that at simplebeep.com. Also, shirts still available there. Oh, yes. If you've got a shorter story, feel free to find us on Twitter. The show is at simple underscore beep. And we are individually on Twitter as well. I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y.
1: And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O.
0: Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.